out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. Yes, we do. Anyway, this week it's going to be the turn of Christian Miller, sometimes known as Stig the Pig, Stigus Maximus, or just Stig. He's the founder member and guitarist of the legendary underground bands Amoebics and Zygote. So, I think that's all you need to know, because you're going to find out more about this in the next hour, and more probably. Anyway, look, after several minutes of casual chat, we were talking about life, love, poetry, and all that other groovy stuff. We got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Come on, it's a great starting place. Anyway, Stig, tell us more, tell us everything. I was born in 62, and, and um, I, I grew up... Uh, Really, I mean, because people have gone about the 70s being a great time. I thought it was shit in the 70s. The music scene was horrible. I, I kind of still listen to bands like Thin Lizzy and Led Zeppelin and, and all the kind of rock bands. But, I mean, those things really weren't mainstream. And the rock music that has become mainstream now was kind of alternative in a way back then, you know? Yes, absolutely. I started getting into things like um, uh, Bowie. I was I was massively into it. And, and T-Rex. T- Just because of the grooves as well, the, the actual way that he played. Yeah. It wasn't technically proficient, but it had a certain... You could always tell it was a bowl and riff, you know? The same as you can always tell a Bowie riff. It's a certain uh, a groove to it, the way that he does things. Yes. And I always, always like that. And, it, you know, fr- from Bowie getting into Iggy Pop earlier on, before the actual kind of UK punk thing, scene kind of happened. So I was kind of prepared for... I kind so, of understood what it was when it happened, you know? So when you were growing up in, did you say Devon? Devon. Yeah, yeah. So, because I'm, I'm sort of, we're from the sort of the backwaters and the rural countryside of East Anglia. So musically and culturally, things didn't really happen that quickly here. So what was it like in Devon? You know, did, was that quite a sort of a, a pastoral countryside that you lived in? Yeah, yeah, pretty pretty much. It was... um. Much the same as what you're saying, where where, you, where you're you're in the sticks, man. You're in you're in the sticks, and like you know, uh, things get there a bit slower, and, and <laughs> you know the, you got to go to the big city to see a band, basically. You know, so like you know, you climb out in the village, or whatever. You got to kind of uh, travel in to see a band, or or see anyone that even really likes music like you do. Yeah. You know, so you you kind of feel isolated and on your own because you you're into this music that everyone thinks is weird. And you're into this whole thing and everyone thinks you're a freak because you just you're not listening to the top 20. You're not listening to like, um, you know, what's on top of the pops. You're, you're looking for something else. So it kind of in a way, it's kind of good, that isolation, really, because it kind of gives you a kind of inner strength. Yeah. Kind of integrity, I think. Later and, were, on in and, and were your parents kind of at all sort of into music or? or sort I, th- of... I think they liked music, but they weren't they weren't like people that played instruments. No, no, yes. not at all. No. Mm. Because it was kind of because I I was from that sort of um, background where, you know, very sort of working class as we all were, and and you know parents kind of just had to work all the time to make yeah. things to to make ends meet. And I remember I think when my parents got married in the fifties, I mean they kind of sold just anything they could just to sort of get together a small mortgage. And no one in that generation ever sort of borrowed money. So. I suppose for most of the 60s when I was born, they didn't have a record player. It was only in the early 70s a record player appeared. And and then my older brother had a few who was seven years older, had some records that I was quite amazed by and excited by. And I would sneak into his room to listen to them, which was, you know, and, and, you know, this was kind of the early 70s. So he had things like, 
you know, the Sergeant Pepper album, which, you know, by the Beatles, yes, yeah. <laughs> um, which I yeah. was kind of fascinated by because it was just so unusual. And also Goodbye Yellow Brick Road by um, Elton John. And again, I thought that, that was, was kind quite, of... That was a quite interesting record. I remember that at the time. I just looked at the cover of it and had a kind of... Because, you know, it's, it's hard to try and um, explain this to people now because of the internet, but the, the mystery surrounding records and the people that made music was what... You think, oh my God, what are these people like who make this kind of music? How yes. do you make a record? You had no clue how these things were done. And, it, and and like, I mean, I used to get an album and just put it on and just stare at the cover and read every single little line and note, found out who produced it, you know, who did this, who did that, and, and then try and work out what these things were. You had, there was no, it's like trying to, there wasn't any way of knowing these things, especially if you lived in the middle of nowhere. Like, was there studios? You didn't know how people recorded the record. It was all a, a completely mystical process. Yeah. So you like, you felt that you were kind of like handed this piece of magic that you kind of looked at and just completely absorbed. And you're at that certain age when music is just everything. When it's everything, yeah. not just not just something to listen to. It's everything. Everything. That's what it was like, you know. Yeah, I know. That's what it was like for me, yeah. Well, well, those early albums, you know, that if I ever hear them now, it's like God. I can all the lyrics, all the all the key changes, everything sort of comes back, and you think, oh well, I'm not surprised because I did listen to it. Like you said, you know, the other band I thought were amazed when I was about. 10 was the Carpenters and lyrically I thought they were just amazing and um, yeah and when I hear a line from the Carpenters they still I'm like oh my god that is so emotional you know because obviously yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. there was kind of it's a kind of dark light to the Carpenters really oh it's, it was it was so dark you know I say yeah, good, I say good yeah. I say goodbye to love no one seems to care if I should live or die I mean you know yeah. when you were 10 and you hear that it's quite you know it's like god that's <laughs> You could drop a Joy Division beat to that, and it would be quite convincing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I often think that if you, you know, if you like the Carpenters, you're bound to like Joy Division, and then you know other such depressing bands because it's it's kind of it's all about you know loneliness, really, isn't it? And trying to sort of find yeah, your way in the yeah. life. So it is. I, kind I like music. I like music that um, kind of describes and deals with the human condition. You know, and we, we are all kind of uh, you know searching for something, and and all. Uh, craving something yeah and sometimes sometimes you can find that you can find a hint of it in music you know you can't really put on your you can't really put into words why you like a track you just know why you like it you just know that you like it or it resonates with you somehow but you can't actually you can't actually say to someone it does it because of this there's just something in it it's speaking it's like a, it's it's a hidden language Yes, absolutely, and also, you know, and, and even to in, even today, it's that sort of thing that gets you just emotionally. And like you just said, you you can't explain it. You just think, God, this is good. This is really yeah, good. Yeah, I yeah. I can. I'm going to listen to this again and again. Though I'm saying that, I did get so obsessed with John Peel and. I would have to listen to a couple of it. I would, I'd never listen to it live. I'd always listen to it kind of from my TDK D90 cassette. So I'd listen to it a few times because listening to all new music at once just was like a bit of a barrage. And a bit overload. It was a yeah, bit yeah. too overload, but it was it was still fine. It was worth <laughs> doing it because you you'd used sort to of... put your cassette recorder by the radio and press record and play. Yes. Well, I remember... <laughs> I definitely did that with Top of the Pops, waiting yeah, for that, that I magic. Used to do it, I used to do it with all the, all the Peel ones. You just got like those little uh, little flat cassette recorders you used to get from Woolworths and you could press record and play and just stick it next to the radio and record it. And it would, 
seem like high quality to you, you know? <laughs> well, the first time we ever got one of those little gadgets and just hearing your own voice back was just, it just freaked us out. I mean, it was, yeah. it was nearly yeah. as, it's as exciting as getting the automatic washing machine and spending all day looking at it. Because up to then, my mum would have a twin tub, you know, in the kitchen, and that would just, like, shake in the kitchen. And it was a really sort of physical thing, doing the washing. You know, you'd have to sort of boil water, put things in one to the other. And then, a, you know, an automatic washing machine was just like, my God, it's incredible. It's just, yeah, yeah. you know, you put the program and it does it, and we all walk it just, away. It just does it. It just, <laughs> just does it. It just does it. I mean, it you know, it. it's like for, for, for people of my generation, you know, it's like... You know, yeah, I remember the color telly. It was like, oh my God, look! It's I like... remember, I remember color TV, and I remember it being, it was like too much for your eyes. I remember watching it. I was watching. I think the first thing I watched on color TV when I had some friends, and everyone used to have the colors really up, really bright to show that they've got a color TV. Look how fucking colorful it is. Look how green. I was watching billiards or snooker or something. And it was just like a big, huge day glow green blast in your face with these red balls and things moving around so wow yes i just i always remember when we got very because the, the start of dad's army there was this puff of smoke and it was like some it was it, you know up to then you know it also was all gray wasn't it shades of gray and so my god yeah, it's, yeah, like, yeah. it's an orange bit of smoke and i remember even today you know that oh my god that's amazing i didn't know that was going to be orange bloody hell yeah yeah it's, it's i mean you know kids now get all that by the age of two we we had to be sort of in our teens before we kind of got excited by color and also switching the telly on and just waiting for it to do something like yeah you could you could kind of say the same thing about music and that it, the the music was like black and white before before the kind of real you know early 70s and we started getting more of a, a punk or early punk scene and then it kind of was color all of a sudden it you was. know what I mean? Rather than just being black and white or bland shit on TV, like, you know, I I've, I've, I can kind of say the same thing about that. It was like having a colour TV, but your music was now in colour. So you what, I, yeah, so so bizarrely, my good old brother, he was also into prog rock. He was seven years older. He, he, he introduced me to the world of Yes, Genesis, Wishbone, Ash, Barkley, James Harvest, which I was still fascinated by <laughs> until I was a bit older and I thought, oh, this is dreadful. But um, so what happened to you? were a bit older, so you would have possibly, you know, punk didn't, didn't get to East Anglia by 1981. Um, so what was, what was your sort of mid-70s period? Mid-70s. Um, I, uh, I, would, I, would, uh, I would listen to things like, uh, yeah, Supertramp, stuff like that, even if you're talking kind of proggy, we're going like Supertramp. Um, Breakfast in America was a great Bre album. <laughs> Crime and Century still, I still think, is a fucking great record. To be honest, yeah, That's absolutely. Yeah, it's it's kind of got emotional pieces to it. It's great, you know. It's it's not, you know. But then we were, I I really liked Hawkwind, so I when I was you know twelve or thirteen, I hitched to see Hawkwind. So I saw Hawkwind when Nemi was in Hawkwind. Like must be so. Oh, the glory days. Oh yeah, man, that was. I mean that 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 was the first live band I ever saw Hawkwind and the Pink Fairies. Jesus, Mick Farron. Yeah, and that was like I think I was twelve, and that was like, wow, this this is this is it. I'm fuck school and the grey reality I live in. These people are doing something, and they, and, and Portwin had a kind of punk rock vibe about the way they put on gigs. Where you kind of turn up and it was like they'd put on gigs in these huge halls, you know, and and that was like a really amazing thing to see as a kid. It's like that's yeah, that's full input, you know. Yes, yeah, that, that, was, that, that, that there was no coming back from that. That really. kind of shaped me, really, to be honest, seeing Hawkwind at such... And seeing the Pink, Fa Pink Fairies was like, wow. 
Yeah, I was like, yeah, I was like, these people are fucking maniacs. You know, they're mad. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> yes, I could imagine actually that would have been. Yeah. Yes, with the Lemmy period was fantastic yeah, as well. Yeah, they were, they were like proper characters. Yeah, and I, particularly if you didn't really know a lot about them because there wasn't a lot in the music press. The way we used to find out about what was going on was just avidly read any anything enemy melody makers sounds just gobble it all up and just take it in try and find out these little things yes i do i do remember my brother had a sort of a book on i don't know the top 500 albums and i remember sort of classic albums and sort of work going to the record library and trying to find these records was just an it was fun you know you'd spend the week or the saturday just look going to the that you know library and just borrowing records and trying to sort of yeah, you know, understand yeah. that as as a kid these people are kind of like gods to you you know you're just like they're just they're not like normal human beings you know you they're like you know it's just like not you couldn't imagine ever meeting any of these people actually you know yes like, like like bowie he's like a god to you when you're a little kid it's like just Starman, you know what I mean? <laughs> well, yeah, I know. I mean, they, they did sort of have a different... Yeah, there was something quite amazing and untouchable mm. about them. And, yes, and I could imagine... Yeah, it, it was... I just remember that first time seeing Top of the Pops and Space Oddity and thinking, my God, what the hell's that? You know, yeah, just being yeah. absolutely amazed. I don't know, you know, I mean, there was probably one or two quite good things on Top of the Pops during that period, and it was kind of essential viewing. It was a bit like Sunday evenings where you'd listen to the top 20 or something and get very excited because the record would move one place up or one place down. Yeah, yeah. And it yeah, would, it, right. it, you know, it was a really slow, my God, it's gone three places up. Oh, my God, this is amazing, you know. They're going to yeah. play it, you know. Jeez, oh, yeah. no, it's gone down. They're not going to play it. Fuck, you know. That's, yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. You know. It, it was like that because of the... You'd be waiting for the band that you liked to kind of go up a bit and kick a few of the bands you didn't like off the chart. <laughs> yes, yeah. and there was some yeah. really, there was some really random kind of bands that would sort of appear on top of the pops, which you know, again, I mean, Motorhead played on top of the pops, which was amazing. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and children's TV as well, and the young ones. So, when did your musical instrument? When did you pick up a musical instrument to begin with? Um, I, I, I was. Um, I worked as a as a silver service waiter in Jersey, so I was like doing. I was like uh, sixteen, and I was just doing like doing waiter work in Jersey, and it was kind of like um, this must be about late seventy seven, seventy eight, and um, I, I just I started bu- I started buying different things about uh, different punk records that were coming out at the time, and just kind of getting into music. And I didn't I, I bought a guitar because I kind of had money because I didn't smoke, I didn't drink. So I had lots of money to spend on things. So I bought myself a kind of like a, I think it was an Esquire, like a kind of Fender copy, cheap Fender copy. Yes. And I started trying to learn it, but there was no real way to kind of, um, I didn't have anyone to teach me. So I just had to kind of play around on it and try and make noises until I could make something that, and, and that's kind of, I'm pretty still much like that now. I don't really know anything technically about, you know, uh, chord progressions or, any of those sort of things. So I've, I've kind of self-taught in that way. Yes. That, that's when I first started picking up guitar and playing around with it. And I didn't, I had no idea how to do it. I didn't even know that you had to tune a guitar when I first, well, I thought you just, I thought machine heads were just for holding the strings on. You know, <laughs> I thought you just got a guitar and you played it. I didn't think you had to tune it or anything like that. So some of those gigs we played earlier on sounded worse than others. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kind of, I'm, I have to confess, I'm working my way through the Beatles eight-hour film, Let It Be, and, um, and it has been just the best thing I've seen for years. And it was quite weird because, you know, Paul's, 
there was a kind of an interview where he's talking about where they just would, they would learn one chord and, you know, go into a shop and they'd go, my God, what's that chord? And they'd go, oh, that's an F. And they go, how do you do it? Then they'd go and tell the rest of the band, they go, oh, that's amazing, that's an F. And then, right. you know, and then they'd sort of write a song, you know, Michelle or something from it. And it's like, oh, okay. And then, you know, they would just learn, you know, so, yeah, just with it's great... Kind of, you're kind of winging it. You're winging it. You're, you're learning as you're going along. That's just kind of like... But that there's something kind of charming about that naivety and not knowing how to do it properly yes it, there's something there's something about that that make, forces you to kind of break boundaries because you haven't you're not you're not following a set path so you can always you can find something of your own in that i like that i like the i, I like the way that i don't really know how to do it in the way it's supposed to be done i don't i, I don't understand what what's supposed to come after this chord or what's supposed to happen next so you yeah. can always that, that was what's good about that's what's good about the early punk scene. It demystified the process of it, so you didn't have to be a, you know, a especially talented, but you just had to have passion to try and do it, to try, to try and um, to try and make something to, and get your voice heard in whatever way you could. Yeah, I think that I think a lot of that, a lot of the things that have happened in music wouldn't have happened without that people not knowing how to do it and just kind of winging it and trying it. Yeah, it was interesting. I think it was a it was a producer I did an interview with Mark Saunders, who started in the eighties. But he he said when he he had a period working in America, and he said it was really difficult because the musicians were all so good that when you were trying to sort of say, look, this isn't quite working, can we try something else and be a bit random? They would go, no, that doesn't work because they were also, you know, I, I remember him saying that he did an interview with um, he was working with a guitarist from Marilyn Manson who yeah. you know who who looked he had all the tattoos and he had all the image and then would play you know made some bluegrass and he said oh yeah I you know I can play any music really you know I've, I've been well well schooled with in this world you've I've been able to you know I've been on tour with these kind of old you know these country artists as well as Marilyn Manson and they just knew that you can you couldn't do that and that because that's a, it's wrong you know we've been taught that it's wrong that's that's, that's what session musicians basically the kind of people that can play anything anywhere yeah they, they, they can play great and everything but they really have passion because they 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 know how to do it it's like they know how to do it but they only know how to do it in the way that you're supposed to do it yes know? so that, that's why that's why things like that sound a bit dull and and, and a bit unimaginative well, because they're not exciting or imaginative because no one's stretching the boundaries or thinking outside the box because they're in the fucking box they were taught how to do it in the box this is the box this is what we have yes this is what we've got to work with we can't possibly go outside the box yes well absolutely i don't think many english british musicians during that time ever went to some sort of college to learn every no. school you know no so. I, I can't i can't see how that helps i mean i know i know i understand people want to go to things like you know uh, some of these music schools and that, but you, they, and then and they try these courses where they try and teach you how to write a song or, or you know, but there's there's you, there's no way to really learn it. There's no way to really learn how to make something that resonates with other people. You can make something that sounds good on the radio. You can make something that sounds, you know, that people will sing along to. But there's no there's a, there's a certain way of doing it. You can't really, you can't really explain how it's done. There isn't a way to explain it. You can either do it or you can't do it. You know what I mean? It's it's, it's kind of it's, a, it's an art. Yes. It's not thought. You can't do it by numbers, and you can't really. 
it's, yeah, it's about kind of letting letting go of the limitations of things. I think anyway. Because every every yeah, well, it's right. Because every five years, someone will say, "Oh, we'll make a we'll make a program about writing a great song." So they'll get someone like Guy Chambers and another producer like Mark Ronson and the best musicians, and they'll go and do this project, you know, for television. And then at the end, they play the song, and you think, "God, that was boring." And then yeah. when, you, when you think of and when you think of the great songs of our time. You know, you think I, it's amazing that you know whatever genre. You know, you, you know, you think there's no way you could have gone into a, some sort of laboratory and said, right, we're going to write this song. Because if someone said, I don't know, as an example, you know, Suzanne Vega who did that song Luca, you know, or Tom's Diner, you know, they say, oh, this is about some child abuse, and and don't worry, it's going to be fine. And they go, oh, you know, that's not going to be a worldwide hit record that's going to be with us for the yeah. rest you know they, they yeah, would have just yeah, kind of yeah. thrown it out wouldn't they and and the Beatles one was quite good because they were doing various songs and they kind of had a bit of an idea and they'd be jamming and then they didn't have the lyrics and they would just go just sing anything just keep la 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 yeah. you know it doesn't matter we'll get the lyrics but let's keep the groove going you know and yeah, it's like yeah, yeah. and yeah. it's like okay you kind of really I mean ev- now you wished every band recorded their creative moment because when it's good, it's it's really interesting because, like you said, it's it's like it didn't just happen. It's like they sat there just re- playing it and playing it and looking more yeah. and more like God. Can we just go home? I can't do this anymore. And then they'll come back the next day and they'll try it again. And yeah, it's yeah. it does. But you, it's a bit like the planet. You know, this, the planets have to line up, don't they? And you have that moment. Yeah, yeah. I think you have those. You have you have those uh, kind of inspired moments. And it's and and you can't really make them happen. They either happen or they don't happen, and that, and that's like that's a that's a, that's a kind of mystery in itself. How that does happen when when I try and think back on things I've recorded that have become like kind of well-known tracks or whatever, I can't actually remember the process before it happened. I just remember it happening. Yes, there wasn't any discussion. Well, you know, let's do this, and then we're going to do this, and we're going to make it sound like this. It just either happened or it doesn't. It just kind of gels somehow. Yes. It's a kind of mystery. That's, that's, I like that. I like that because it's not it's not definable. You can't say this happens if you do this and you do that. It's not a mathematical formula, you know. I know. It, there's, so, there's, there's, there's a lot. As as just basically a fan, I didn't. You know, the complexities of getting that kind of dynamic just right for that one moment is quite amazing, isn't it? And it's it's like. The, you know, I know I keep on about it, the Beatles film. You know, it's all going terrible. I mean, it's going really well. They're having a great time, and it's kind of interesting. But you kind of, I'm down to the last thirty minutes, and you think, Jesus, it's going. They're going to break up in the in basically the next thirty minutes. You can't see it happening, but you're thinking it's going to happen, isn't it? They're just going to have a massive row, and it's all going. I haven't seen it. I must look. I must check that out. I haven't seen it. Sounds good. Yes, yeah, it's, but it's, you know, you can, you can. There can be things like uh, different different aspects. Like it could be the studio in. It could be also be the producer being encouraging or whatever it could be something that happened the night before that plays on your mind when you come in the next day and makes you play a certain way or makes you sing a certain lyric or something that's happened to you before that brings something that was all those different things that can that can go into a song you know that's 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 what makes it because it's an expression of being human yes absolutely and in some of those lyrics that one ends up writing are just quite, you know, they're almost like that David Bowie cut and paste. But obviously there's ideas that keep coming in and you stick it together and it's like, well, that's amazing. But, you know, at the same time, it's kind of um, quite random. You just cut and paste, like Brian Jinton sort of cut and paste, like 
Burroughs type of thing. Yeah, Bubby was quite. I, didn't know that. I did not know that. Yes, he loved cut. There was an uh, there was one of those films he did, um, Cracked Actor, when he was in America, being he was slightly coked out of his brain, and uh, he was kind of cutting up these kind of lyrics and sticking them together to try and create something. So, um, and he's there with his big pair of scissors and sort of putting these things together, which yeah, was, yeah, yeah. You know, he I, got. I think... I think Eno used to do something similar, didn't he? Well, he used to have some kind of inspiration boards or something. Yeah, he had cards and he would yeah, just... Yeah, yeah. It's a kind of similar thing to kind of trigger your mind into going in a certain direction. I can get that, yeah. Yeah, and when they yeah. did, when he did that song, Boys, uh, Boys Keep Swinging, they were playing it and they were like, this doesn't kind of work because it needs to be kind of more punk or much more loose. So they, they all sort of put their instruments down and just played someone else's instrument so they were okay but they weren't quite as smooth as they would have been so you get a much looser sound if you listen to that song that you think yeah it's kind of quite loose isn't it but I think the players couldn't be that loose because they would be just too good on you know good with it yeah that's that's why those records are great because they're experimenting they're they're kind of uh, pushing the envelope a bit and going outside the box they I I like I like things I like things that are are doing that well what I know Brian Eno said when he was working with Bowie, he said, you know, look, just experiment because no one's going to die. What we do, it doesn't matter. We're not, we're not surgeons. Let's just yeah. kind of go. And they brought out low. And you think, God, that must have been such a, <laughs> such a shocker for every record producer. Going. I love that. I love that record. <laughs> I, love, I, I love that record. I like that stuff. And I like the kind of like station to station stuff. And I, I used to have every Bowie bootlegging live in Berlin, all this stuff I had. Oh, I had I, there's one of the few people that I bought every record they did, I think. Yeah, I must have done. Some of that Some of that synth stuff was really atmospheric, amazing. Low is great. Yeah, I really like it. It's kind of a bit like Scott Walker, some of it, actually, some of that. And the band he had on some of those live tours during that period were, were incredible, actually. They were just incredible musicians. So Was that great Carlos Alomar? Wow, yeah. he was pretty amazing. He was on one, and they had this guy, Dennis, somebody on drums, and um, I don't know, and, and uh, another keyboard player who I think was called Richard House, but I might be wrong. But I do remember, I've seen lots of little bits of YouTube clips of them, and, you know, they obviously really knew how to play together as well. You know, yeah, which was, yeah, yeah. That, that was kind of, yeah, that had a great vibe to it. I like that stuff. Yes. So, look, 79, dear old 1979, it's an epic year for, for us in the UK, because Thatcher gets in. Suddenly, the... the, 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 the <laughs> Suddenly we have the stranglehold of the Tory government for quite a few decades after that. After the 70s were so random, wasn't it, with the political landscape? And then, you know, and then there was this huge amount of unemployment in the early 80s. And then we had the Falkland War and the Green and Common. And then we had the miners' strike. And then, you know, so it was a kind of a grim time for a lot of people, myself included. So what yeah. was, what, how did you start to navigate that period? Because this is where the band had started to form, wasn't it? Well, I was, I was, um, remember, do you remember Youth Opportunities? God, we love that, yop. I, I had, I was on Youth Opportunities schemes, so it was like painting and decorating at this kind of like a community centre, so I, that would be, and I mean, the pay was terrible, a real, a real pittance, and you're kind of really slaving away for just nothing. But it was a community centre, and they put gigs on there, so I kind of got to meet people that were doing music. And then, I mean, I think... 79 we were just like just playing around trying to find a sound you know you you kind of copy other people for a while or you kind of get inspired by other people and then you eventually start to develop something of your own yes we had a lot of very a lot of um 
moving about from place to place and staying on one person's floor and moving to another person's floor and, and taking your guitar with you and maybe getting an amp and it, yeah it was really it was a I understand today it's quite an easy thing to do to start a band but back then it was really really hard a really difficult thing to do even though everyone was doing it if you didn't have the uh, equipment you're always borrowing stuff other people or borrowing people's amps or borrowing guitars and and just trying to learn how to do it so we, we mostly play like parties and um uh you know people's dues or or like oh we'd rehearse in old church halls yes you know, and that sort of thing you're going to hire them out from the day and make sure they don't know who you are and just turn up and play and or you'd always set up a party or a gig in a hall and that was kind of like really just friends all gathering around and getting drunk and having a good time. Yeah. Well, had you so, had you relocated by then as well? No, not until about not until uh, nineteen eighty. We were going to move to Bristol. Right. So, and, and then we kind of moved here, and uh, that was like I was just literally turning up with a a guitar and a bag on the bus, uh, and just getting out here and uh, looking for people that were squatting. And that's how we ran into disorder and a lot of the Bristol people. So, like, and we ended up, you know, squatting down the road from them. Yes. And and that was that was a that was a kind of a, a scene that wasn't really recognised by the music industry. Didn't really know it was going on, but we had this huge thing going that was pretty much kind of underground. So we'd be playing gigs, we'd be setting a gig up in a in a squat, or going down and busting lock off an old church and setting a gig up in there, or. You know, some of the gigs were kind of on the record, like playing, playing the bigger places like the Granary or you know the Fleece. But most of them were like kind of guerrilla tactics: go in, set a gig up, play, set a bar up or not, get them on, <laughs> go to the shop and buy their cider or whatever they're going to do, and just and just do it. Yes, that's kind of like that was kind of spontaneous. Because the 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 especially, I mean, it must have been happening in the sixties uh, and seventies. But the squatting, the punk squatting scene in the eighties was quite something. Because in Norwich you had Argyle Street, which was quite big, and then Leeds had quite a scene, and then North London was also quite a scene of squatting, and and so obviously Bristol, Manchester, yeah. Liverpool. So there was that scene that sort of developed a lot at that point. And then there were bands like had Blythe Power formed by then, or were they still? In that was, wasn't that the wasn't that the some of the guys from the mob, the mob and sounds, and and sounds. Yeah, yes. I mean, uh, I don't. I think Blythe Power formed after the mob, but maybe they were going at the same time. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I, I we played a played the zigzag gig up in London with the, with Crass, which is like a kind of all dayer of just all of those bands. Everyone, everyone from the anarcho punk thing was at this thing. It was just like squatted this place. We turned up and just played it, and that was a. You, you could go on and play three songs each, and then the next band's on because there were so many bands. <laughs> but that was great. Now, I saw the mob then; they were really fantastic. I thought they sounded completely different to everyone else. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it was probably yeah. like Live Aid, wasn't it? But with a slightly different I vibe. Live Aid for grubby little herbits. Yeah. Yes, well, absolutely. <laughs> but there was, it was kind of interesting because there was a book that came out a few years ago by a guy who put it together was Sam Neill. And I think it was all the, the different scenes, especially in the 80s. And, and actually, I, I, I'd sort of slightly sort of had it as a, there was this, this and this. But, I, but then there was all these other ones, you know, from Psychobilly to, to Goth to Narcopunk to, you know, I Yes, it's Hugh Gaze. And, and it was a very tribal time. It was yeah. a very tribal time. And, you, you know, you, there, there was... you want to be around a crew of the other people that weren't one of yours, it could get quite nasty. Yes. You know? having, to, having to deal with normal people that want to 
you know, like grown-up men that want to beat you up when you're a teenager because you look weird. And then you're going to have to deal with the other supposed rival tribes of other things like psychobillies or skinheads or whatever, you know? So, like, yeah, it was it was dangerous. It was kind of dangerous. It was exciting, but it was dangerous. It's, yeah. Yeah. Kind of life-threatening situations and the uh, beatings and humiliations that go with uh, growing up. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, the one band that you could never say anything about in this area was Status Quo. The Status Quo fan was quite, quite... You know, they were quite... They were the prototype for your modern metal fan. You know. Really. And, uh, yeah, they, remember that Grebo dance they used to do? Oh, oh my God, yes. I could never sit still for Status Quo. I always hated them. And, I, and I, they're probably nice guys and that, but Status Quo, that was the epitome of fucking dad rock to me. I, it was, oh, my God, Status Quo on top of the pops again. Please, fuck <laughs> off. <laughs> Yeah, they they quickly kind of you know they kind of quickly represented a sort of a a very I suppose people thought they were still rebellious. But it's all in the name, isn't it? Really? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> it was the it was a, a giveaway. But one thing that was really evident in that period was the, the there was like almost gatekeep. You know, it was kind of the, the, you know we had the three music papers. You know, Melody Maker, Sands, NME, and then you know every city and town in the you know country had an alternative venue night of some descriptions. Like you had the one in twelve club in Bradford, and then I suppose a bit later on you had things like the Princess Charlotte in Leicester and the Duchess in Leeds, and you had Norwich Arts Centre and stuff like that. So you know, and then there was other you know there was DJs like John Peel, and then there was obviously. A few other people like, I don't know, Kid Jensen and Janice Long. So so people, if, you know, you could get your music to a quite a bigger audience quite quickly. And, all the, and with the anarchist scene, there was also a bit of a, a network as well, wasn't there? So did you, yeah. did you sort yeah. of find yourself being able to start to develop a, a sort of a audience and sort of attention? Yeah, in that, I mean, we'd organise gigs from a, a phone box down the road or it would be letters. Mostly the old the old anarcho punk thing was what they call it the soap stamp thing. Oh people God, would put yeah. soap on the stamp so you could, uh, you know, wash the ink off and use it again. You know, fuck the postal system and all that. Yes, <laughs> we're going to bring down the so state. A lot of a lot of gigs, you'd you'd get things go wrong. Like you know, you'd organise someone would send you a letter and you'd write back and say, yeah, we'll be there. And sometimes you couldn't be there, and but you couldn't warn them ahead of time that you weren't going to be there because there was no way to contact them. So, so a lot, a lot of these gigs were kind of put on, and, they, and miraculously they worked out. A lot of them worked out, and I don't know how. You know, sometimes people get really pissed off if you didn't show up because there was no way you could say we've had this problem or that problem. You know, oh, so and so they never showed up, but we showed up for most. Anyway. Yes, well, I know a few bands who went up. To, you know, like. I don't know, up north, I thought, you know, like the Wolfhounds from London. And they got there and the gig had been pulled and they didn't have any money to get home. So they sort of yeah, had yeah. to, to yeah. sort of busk for a few days to get home. Yeah, you get, you get there and something had happened and you would, no one would be able to tell you it had happened. So, like, yeah, there was a few disasters like that when you get there, oh, it kicks off. Yes. Police have closed the venue or, like, you know, everyone's been evicted or whatever. Like, yeah, yeah. It was kind of weird. And actually, I did an interview with Fast Eddie from Motorhead and he said once they, they sort of, they didn't have any money to get home because they had no petrol. So they just kind of, broke, you know, vandalised the van and someone phoned, you know, someone was a member of the AA and they sort of yeah, had to yeah. get towed back again. So it was like he said, you know, you wouldn't believe how little money there was in the 70s. It was just like, you know. It was, it was, it was harsh times. It was harsh times. Yeah, there was even, even if you did successfully play a gig, it wasn't like you're going to come home with any money. You probably you'd end up like having enough to have a few drinks 
or whatever and maybe get the petrol money home yes yeah. and that was yeah. that was quite exciting so when yeah. so as as you progressed in the the 80s the glorious decade your first album came out mid it was on alternative tentacles wasn't it yeah yeah that was the first um full length proper album we did we did we did stuff for uh, spider leg records before that we'd done uh, two singles for spider leg records which was spider leg head records which is a uh, a kind of a kind of subsidiary of the crass thing in a way, but it was really us and the subhumans were on mm-hmm. spider leg records. So because we didn't quite fit in with the the crass label, we all kind of no one knew where to put us really. So we ended up on that and recording that we recorded the uh, the first thing we recorded. We just went into went into a studio here, eight track, put our gyros together, got eighty quid to get, and went in there and recorded four tracks in one day, and that was it. And that was the first single. We right. Didn't, we didn't sit around wondering about the mix or the guitar tone or any of that sort of thing like you do today. You just went in and you bashed down what you could do, and that there's a kind of spontaneity in that. You've got a few. You've got a few hours to do this. Get in there, do it, record it, done. Yes. Sent off. First single. Next single. We, uh, the next single we recorded in Cave Studios in Bristol. And that was like in a day as well. Bash, bash, straight down. Just. Uh, angry desperate to put something down and then you can feel it on those on those early records and the third thing we did was the who's the enemy ep which is kind of well it's almost an album length really i think it's got about seven tracks and that was recorded in southern studios which was the kind of craft studio up in wood green right oh, which they... is kind of a weird studio really because you're like you, you had like a, a control room was kind of in a garage across a courtyard and then you had like the, the rooms in the house to record in but you know yeah i didn't i didn't uh, yeah and that's actually where we met jello biafra the first time because they came the kennedys came over i think it was in 81 or 82 they were over here touring i think first or second time they'd been in this country and jello was connected with the southern southern the studios distribution people which was uh i can't remember the guy's name I can't remember his name at the moment, but they had a lot of records in there, which all they were doing distribution of some of the American hardcore stuff and some of the more interesting stuff like Flipper. Right. God, we so don't... Jello was there going, giving us this Flipper record and trying to get us into Flipper because that was the only thing he could put his finger on that would be kind of similar to us. Yes. So, yeah, and then and, uh, he ended up being very interested in us, and but they really couldn't class. It wasn't, it wasn't like now where you have this, punk metal thing or or extreme music and all that thing there wasn't there wasn't any pigeonhole there wasn't any demographic to to kind of punt it to really so they had to kind of uh they weren't really sure how to market this thing or put it out yes so and just to let it go really which is which is but you'd i mean you know as as we all sort of and as you know more than most the di- getting the dynamic of the band sort of working is always quite tricky. How do, how was that developing with with you and the uh, the rest of them? Because had you sort of got a steady lineup by that phase, stage? When we we would we were doing it, we would we used Virus the Disorder drummer for the first two singles and for the first EP, and then um, Virus didn't want to do it anymore, and we ended up living out in um, in Radstock just outside Bath. This little town, this little kind of village just outside Bath. And uh, there's this guy, Spider, who's in this band in Bath called Scum. It's kind of like a really hardcore type of band. 
and Spider was up for drumming, and he he kind of brought something different to it because Virus's style was a lot of rolling toms and more tribally type of thing. Right. But uh, but Spider's style was a bit more rock, a bit more rock steady, and that way he kind of so we could, it it made it gel a bit more because we're used to kind of playing to rolling toms. This is a bit more snare orientated and more more of that. So that that changed things up, and yeah. So it's always been my brother and myself and whoever wants to come along and join us on the adventure, really. So, like, yeah, we ended up doing that. Uh, we recorded Arise. We recorded in in Sam Studios in Bristol, which was, uh, I think, something like probably getting on for a 16 track then, which is a huge deal to us to use more than eight tracks. So, like, that, that was that was bashed down in a, in a week or so, I think as far as I can remember. And that, that was one of those things that just happened. You got in there and you played. And some of the songs were actually written on the spot in the place. Right. Blimey. But we had been touring different versions or different ideas of songs. And then we got in the studio because we'd been playing these songs live, some of them. Some of them we played and we did as as was when we, record, when we were re- playing them live. And other ones, uh, we kind of rewrote just on the fly, bash, straight there as quickly as we could. Well, we, also, we also had George from Smart Pills playing synth on Arise, which made it give it a bit more depth. Yes. So it was kind of, um, it's it kind of like us trying to trying to take it up a notch, you know? Make and did different. you manage to sort of find a producer? Because this was with Jason, is it Rosenberg, who was on that album, doing that? No, album? no, no, no. This this was, was this, this one, uh, Arise was recorded by Sooty, who was actually ended up being a member of chaotic discord at some point i think but it was it was his studio by that time it was pretty much him running and everything so like we didn't have a producer as such but we had engineers and we had us and people that were enthusiastic and could feel there was something there so it wasn't like oh i'm going to make you guys sound like this or we're going to do this we just sat there and said okay that's cool do that and he had good ideas and we had good ideas to put in though we didn't know how to articulate what we wanted we kind of we could kind of feel it was either good or not you know yes absolutely and then just because i haven't done this show for quite a few years i mean most bands have that kind of interesting narrative you know that almost five years you know where things start to sort of develop you know there's the honeymoon phase then that first period where you know you get a single together and then you know a lot of bands you know get the john peel play don't they and then the john peel session the first album things going well second album can be really good then sort of third album so how was your because the 80 you know you had sort of pretty well had been together sort of for seven years when you were doing the second second album and yeah. uh, how was the how was it developing then well the different thing about being in a band back then is you all lived in the same space you were in the same squat so you're in each other's pockets all day long, really, you know. So it was it's not like, oh, you know, so and so comes in in his jag or whatever, and so and so comes in, you know, we were all living in the same scene in the same places. So yeah. Yes. So so that that kind of that either gels or breaks things in that way, you know, like you either kind of learn to get along with each other's different idiosyncrasies or you or you don't you know what I mean? <laughs> did did it did the dynamic change when people's girlfriends started to appear that's always kind of an interesting one you, you always get a bit of that you know like you, you know spinal tap yes that that's that perfect bit in that that just reminds me of some of the things that happened you kind of like come on guys let's hold on to the mission let's not let everything go to shit you know not any personal talk about anyone but yeah that spinal tap that makes me 
that just so reminds me of some of the things that got a bit like that, you know? Yes. <laughs> and it's going to make us wear this. Okay. Yeah. So did you, did you ever have kind of band meetings where you kind of sat down as a band and really sort of talked things through? No, that's... no, no, I don't ever remember having band meetings. We didn't, we never had a band meeting. Maybe it would have been fucking better if we did have a band meeting. No, I can't. We never had band meetings. We just said, okay, rehearsal this week, Tuesday, let's go into Bath and uh, play very loudly and drink lots of special brew and try and make some songs up. And that, that was, that's how it is. Yeah. That's usually how th- things just kind of seem to happen. I don't, we didn't ever sit and we never discussed uh, how we wanted things to sound. It just kind of went that way and it, and it, felt right to go that way you know yes so what i think was... if, if, we'd, if we'd actually known how to play properly and we'd known all you know all, all these different things that you were supposed to do i don't think it would have been the same i think it would have been shit to be honest <laughs> so, yeah so when you came to do your second monolith album yeah. 87 which i still think is the great the best year of music ever um what was the atmosphere like with the band then um it was, me and my brother were living out in radstock we had spider and we had this guy, Andy, that I kind of met at a party and thought he should be in a band. I don't know why. He just seemed like he could, he'd be good. And he was um, he was uh, epileptic, but I mean, badly epileptic. And the fact that he'd take the meds and he'd still have seizures and things. But he, after he'd learned something, he was pretty, some some nice synth. He played some nice synth on that. Yes. And we, we kind of knew what we wanted by that time. So we were kind of getting a bit, you know, trying to get him to do it. But when he got it down, it was really cool. Yes. So, yeah, so things were a little bit, I guess, I remember things being a bit tense there. You know, and we all had our different uh, addictions and problems to deal with as well on top of that, you know. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah it, and, it, and, it got done. and you had Kath on flute, didn't you, as well, on, on, the, yeah, on the title yeah. track. Did that, was that kind of an interesting... That was weird because we all, that was the first time I'm working with, this is someone that's a classical musician. And she couldn't get it without you writing it down. We didn't know how to write music. We didn't know how to write down what she could play. So, so that's, that's the uh, old discipline school of music versus our way of doing things where we have she couldn't jam because that's not what they do. They don't jam. They read music and they play. Yes. They play the music they see on a page. So it's really strange. To, why can't you just jam it? Yeah. You know? So I think certainly ended up trying to write it out or make it so she could understand what she was doing because she couldn't she couldn't jam because they they come from that discipline where you don't jam you read music and you play what you see on the paper you know yeah so that was quite strange to see that I was thinking God it's like some kind of mental block that you can't jam that's weird. <laughs> it, it, it is. It is. I suppose it'd be like I don't know a sports person who couldn't, you know, when you do anything like that, you break things down and you rehearse them and practice them differently, don't you? Or yeah, you know, music's the same. I mean, again, you know, God, I keep on about this film, but you know, the Beatles were just jamming all the time, you know, and every yeah. time they went to do a take, you knew they'd mess it up, and they would just keep going, but putting on silly voices and messing around and really laughing, you know, because they kind of knew, okay, let's just do the song, but we'll just kind of put on the silly, you know, accents. Or... It's also, also so you don't get pissed off with doing it. You got to cheer yourself up. You played the song a hundred times, you're just sick of it, man. Yeah, and it's like it'd right. Be, be, yeah, and sometimes being those silly things can turn out to be something good that you can use. Yes, and, and and it's I mean, kind I, of... I was in like those Stooges listening to. Um, I think it was Raw Power, and I didn't. When you listen to Raw Power, you're like, you think they've just gone in and bashed these songs down, 
but there's just hundreds and hundreds of takes. Yes. Of Stooges stuff where you, where you just think, because you listen to it, you think, well, oh, they've just gone in there and they smacked it down. But you, there's, they've taken those songs again and again and again and again and again, much the same way you're talking about, until they've got the one they want. And it's interesting. And then, you know, a band like Black Sabbath, you know, had played live for so long. And then when they went in the studio, it was a bit like, actually, we just, we can just put this out in an afternoon. You know, it, we don't yeah. need, you know, because they, they'd rehearsed it so, so much. That's why it sounds great as well, because it sounds, Black Sabbath, to me, at the time when I was listening to it when I was a kid, it sounds like a load of guys in a basement being recorded well, you know, just going for it. That's what's cool about Black Sabbath. It doesn't sound overproduced. It doesn't sound... You know, it doesn't sound over-processed or anything. It sounds real, and it still sounds real. Some of those old Sabbath records are great. Yeah, God, they're amazing, actually. But interestingly enough, with, you know, the Beatles one, they're on the roof doing a song, you know, this is this is where I'm up to at the moment, and, and it sort of flashes up, say, this this is a track that appears on the album, you know, and they're on the roof in a freezing cold January day, and they've, they've yeah. you know, they thought, actually, that's a good take, that's better than we've done, in, you know, any other take. And you, again, you know, it's like it shows that a band can really play live, that they're thinking, yep, that's it, you know, you're the Beatles, and... We've got the take, you know, you're on the roof, yeah. freezing you off. Also, didn't the Beatles say the way that they got to be uh, as good as they were really was from, from playing all those clubs in Hamburg and playing two or three sets a night. So when they, they made that connection with each other. They knew what each other was going to play before they played it. Yes. Well, there's that there's that theory, isn't there? The Malcolm Gladwell, you know, the the hundred thousand is it the hundred thousand or ten thousand hours? No, ten thousand hours. 10, 000, if you if you yeah. practice for that amount of time, you you know you get to that point where you can start to to release or do something quite special. And I did an interview with was it JJ Fox from Twisted Sister, and they were a kind of amazing band. They'd been going from seventy two. They couldn't get a record deal until the early 80s or sort of like 82, 83. But they played, the only way they kept going was just playing every night, probably twice a night, just to keep yeah. the band going. So when they eventually did hit it in the 80s, you know, they, they were like, God, we can, you know, we're a brilliant live band. You know, I didn't really yeah. like Twisted Sister. But... No, I didn't, I didn't either. But, you know, that, that's a lot of things I should like. I just, for some reason, I just... I don't know why I don't like them. I didn't really get them at all. It's like, it's like Iron Maiden. I can't sit still for that either. You know, I should like it. It rocks, but it just doesn't make doesn't resonate with me. You know. Yeah, it's weird actually because I you know, it was Black Sabbath, Deep Purple, and then later on it was Motorhead, and that was it really. I didn't, you know, I couldn't call myself a real rock fan, but I do love Motorhead. Even the later stuff, even the last album, I thought was just brilliant. You know, I thought Motorhead is is. Um... It's, it's something entirely of its own, yeah. And it's like it's got, kind of got provenance, you know. It's like, yeah, it's it's real, it's real. I I always really liked the first Motorhead lineup. That's fucking great, you know. But like, yeah, Fast Eddie and all that. That that was that was a cool lineup. But I do like the later stuff as well. You know, that, yeah. There was a real bad, there was a bit of a dip in the 90s, but they get a good producer at the end and they seem to have just really found the, their sound. And I don't know, I think maybe. I think we were, we after Monolith, we were trying to get Lemmy to sing on one of our songs. It was like a, a song about um, motorcycle discrimination laws that were happening back then, which was like a kind of right to ride thing. We were trying to get Lemmy to sing on it, but we, were, we got in contact with this management that he wasn't well at the time, so he couldn't do it, which is a shame. That would have been interesting if he'd done it. God, that would have been amazing. <laughs> yeah. So after your after Monolith comes out, how, the band, does that split quite soon after then? Kind of, around that sort of time. It, it, um, 
<clears throat> me and my brother sold the house we were living in and he him and his girlfriend went to live um in another house and i bought a barge I ended up living on a barge so that was kind of like he didn't he just didn't want to do it anymore i think he had that you know that familial pressures thing of of, of you know because he had a kid and everything so like i didn't have that pressure on me but he had that pressure on him to maybe get a job and uh you know stop fucking around and all that <clears throat> so i you know he, he just didn't want to do it anymore i needed to carry on doing music so i i ended up um living on a barge in bath yes um and which was just down the road from where we used to rehearse anyway and, and putting together another band called zygo which was a a different thing and a a, a, a very uh <laughs> A messy band, a, 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 a very a messy group of individuals making some music. But yeah, we had we had fun doing it. But it was they, the, I think the nineties, the late eighties and nineties were pretty grim for me personally. And, I think, and it was very very dark times. You remember all this stuff about the, uh, <coughs> the, the what they were doing to the travellers and what happened after Stonehenge and what happened after the beatings. Everyone got Stonehenge. That was that program was being carried out. From the start of this of the uh, Battle of the Beanfield, that was statues kill the travellers, yes, and destroy all voices of dissent, you know, shut down people, basically trying to shut people down, and that's what was going on. I remember going to those Glastonbury's in the the sort of latter half of the eighties, and and yeah, like you said, the Battle of the Beanfield had been quite horrendous, and and the police had been given a like do anything you want kind of vibe yeah, yeah, and they yeah. and they really did go for it and decide that you know they were going to do it completely but then it was kind of yeah it was kind of a strange time because it was almost like i i remember a few of those festivals around that time they didn't have much joy in them. They, they'd sort of like the party had really finished, hadn't it? And I thought the alternative scene was really going to die. But then there was it sort of picked up again in the 90s. There was Castle Malton and then festivals started to, to really take off. And there was people like, I don't know if you ever come across him, Chris Tofu or Tofu and uh, the Tofu Love Frogs. And, oh, I um, remember the name. I remember the name of them. Yeah. And, they, and, you know, people started sort of getting the festival scene going again and Glastonbury started to sort of like get itself a bit more sorted and they had things like Las Vegas Field and, you know, the, there was a yeah, lot of... Yeah, it, it, it kind of went from that to being the kind of a... You know, I, I played Glastonbury with Zygo a couple of times with up in the Greenfield. Remember the, the Greenfield? God, yes, I, I used to get a free ticket for the Healing Field. Yeah, yeah, I think we played, I think we played 89, I think we played, played Glastonbury, but there was a lot... The fallout from the whole Thatcher thing on the travellers made a lot of very bitter and angry, angry fucking people going around. A lot of violence and a lot of nasty gangster activity going on underneath all that as well with drugs and and all the other shit that went with it. So there was a lot of a lot of things went really, really dark with that. Yeah, because there was one Glastonbury where the there was a sort of a whole scene from Bristol had got into a massive fight with a lot of the security and things started getting you know like burnt out didn't they and um, yeah yeah and yeah. quite a lot there was a lot of violence there was just yeah it all spiraled it wasn't uh, the same similar thing happened to me going to uh, to play with Zyger I think we went on to, I think it was called Torpedo Town Fest in Brighton just outside Brighton and we turned up there to play and and all these it, it was like fucking Beirut man really it was fucking mad. Yeah, they, they, someone had attacked one of the Hawkwind buses and and found a fucking kilo of coke taped to the bottom of a of a gas container. And, and it, I remember just walking up towards the stage, and this guy just jumped out of nowhere with a crash helmet on, 
and went, I know you and your fucking guitar, smashed me over the head with a baseball bat and, and managed to break my arm as well. I fucking just completely people fucking psychotic. I don't know what I don't know what they were all taking, but they were really a lot of really mad and dangerously unstable people running about doing some horrible shit. Yes, it was. It there was, you know, there's no, there's not any, there's no law or anything. There's nothing you can do about it, you know. But yeah, there was some really, really nasty stuff. Like, like Stone Engine '84. That was really fucking nasty as well. You know, being there was really a fuck. It was just, a, you know, all these fucking biker groups running around ripping people off and raping women and hurting people and beating people up. It was fucking dark. Yeah. So really, from that, from that, um, after that, things got kind of worse and worse. And I mean, I'm, we played, um, <laughs> we played at a Trawagi in 89 and Trawagi 89 is infamous as being a really, if you, if you look it up online, it says a dust, but was it a, a dust bowl of drugs, depravity and death? Yeah. I mean, we had a great time, but it was, <laughs> <laughs> we, we had a great time, but it was, it was like, yeah, that was that was the kind of tail end of that thing, and you could feel the things were starting to burn itself out. Yes, people were just so fucking disillusioned and angry, and pissed off. A lot of people started travelling because they needed to get out of the city. You know, there was no way you could live in the city; it became too expensive. You wanted to live off grid, and then they started to shut that option down. So you know, people living in 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 caravans or living in buses or whatever were just being treated like you know, some kind of untermensch and getting fucking wiped out and beaten down, you know? Yeah, it was quite Very... a... But I do remember, you know, like you said, about that whole Stonehenge period of 80, 84, and then I think people were just on really heavy drugs. I think it was just the drugs was had completely mangled people because it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, initially I was a bit naive and innocent. I probably still am. But, um, you know, you just thought, oh, yeah, the hippie, peace and love, let's be a bit sort of, we're all on the same side against the, you know, the establishment and capitalism. And then you realise... Jesus, actually, I don't know. I don't. I don't know who I trust least at the moment. Because yeah, I, yeah, you know. you, you, I, I kind of got that myself. Where you're thinking, okay, these are supposed to be my people, but are they really my people? <laughs> you know, are they? You know, I, I mean, I've got I've still got a lot of friends from all those days, but I mean, I don't. You know, because I don't know. I guess it's you, you're talking about moving from things like hash to things like coke and a lot of speed. Um, you know. And, and then and then people disapproving of other drugs and because they disapprove of like someone taking this drug or that drug they go and beat them up things like that you know there's a lot of weird weird um double standards going on yes. yeah i think heavy drugs and 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 the um the pervasive influence influence of basic kind of groups of gangsters that looked a bit hippie-ish or but, crews coming out selling this drug or that drug bad drugs as well that make you go fucking mad or whatever you know yeah that that's that was something that happened in the 70s really but it kind of really came to a head in the 80s with yeah but i did notice that there was also that next movement in the late 80s and then into the 90s the ecstasy generation where things got fluffy a bit more again and the rave world and then we had bands like the levelers and then a band called censor so did you sort of feel that once you'd got slightly over that kind of the the end of the party and god it's gone bad yeah kind of but by, by that time you know i was i went to some of those things some of the rays i've eaten a few disco biscuits and had a boogie you know yeah cool yeah but that was a lot safer there was a lot of a safer vibe there i mean these these weren't kids living in squats these were people coming coming from there in their cars and going to have a dance and take some ease 
Yes. So yeah, there, there was there was something in that, you know, there was something in it. So I mean, I think that that phased out really the dark days of the really nasty, unpleasant festival stuff tend to get um, phased out for the, your Castle Mortons and your more um, upbeat love vibe, which is what they should have been about in the first place. But, you know. Yes, I know. I, I, think, I don't know what happened to a lot of those people. A lot, a lot of them just descended into addiction and died, to be honest. Yes, it doesn't take doesn't take long. Yeah, well, it was it was a bit like the New York scene, wasn't it? Because I mean, there was so much kind of cheap heroin around, and then all those bands like you know the the New York Dolls and Johnny Thunders and Jerry Noland. I mean, they all they just became smackheads. And um, well, they... it, well, that's if you noticed that that happened in the eighties during the Thatcher crackdown on everyone. You suddenly got all this smack turning up from from everywhere and it's always in the poor areas it's always in the poor areas where things are going to kick off yes. we live in st paul's the whole place was just flooded with heroin from 1980 onwards before that you didn't you couldn't find heroin then it was just everywhere and and people that didn't normally take drugs were taking heroin normal people were taking heroin people that weren't freaks and outsiders were taking drugs yes so it became normalized and drug taking and the acceptance of being fucked up became normalized you know things like brookside I mean, things about drugs on it. You know, Liverpool was flooded with smack. Bristol was flooded with smack. London was flooded with smack. Everywhere was flooded with smack. Whereas before it was something you had to go and look for. Now yes. it came to you. Now it came to you. It was everywhere around you. So, so how, yeah. yeah. So how long did you manage to survive on a barge? Um, I think I lived for... I had the barge for six or seven years. Eventually I sold it. I had a, I had a kind of flat. But yeah, yeah. So I mean, I liked living on my barge. There was a few things about it, you know, like um, being very tall. You can't really stand up fully in a barge. <laughs> I mean, all my friends were just down the road. I could go and rehearse and yes, do things like that. So it was all right, you know. Yeah, I, I, I kind of liked it. I just move up and down the canal and, and uh, keep away from the water guys trying to make me pay my moorings. So it was a couple, that was kind of like a traveller thing. But that was where the next stage of travelling went. A lot of people that had trucks moved onto barges. Yes. Or they bought boats because it was a bit more quiet. And you could have, you know, you were rather than being parked up on the on the land, you'd be parked up on the water. And people helped each other out. So it was a bit more of a smaller scene, but it was kind of nice. So then, so as the a night... Kind, a bit kinder, kinder kind of feeling, you know? Well, I have to say, that's that that's always appealing as you get older. Yeah, yeah, especially if you had a lifetime of shit, you want a bit kind. <laughs> <laughs> but I know. I don't I don't apologise for saying the word mm. nice anymore, really, because you think, oh... No, why not? Why not? <laughs> need a bit more nice, a bit, a bit more kind, and a bit more empathic and, and kind behaviour from it, people. It does. So yeah. then, and then sort of with, with the, on the music scene then, so do you sort of... You know, because you've you've brought out quite a few of the you know albums with your your next lineup. I mean, was that the sort of is that did music become more of a I don't know a part time? Uh... Um, music's always been I kind of I, I get I have to kind of stay creative and doing things. I find it quite um, it's quite not good for me not to be creative. You know, I'm just one of those people that has to be doing something musically and has to be doing something creative and feel excited about it. I think in that stage, a lot of your self-worth gets tied up in music and the, and the creativity and the things you make. And, you know, I record now with using computers and things. But, yeah, that's that's cool. And, and you know, it's nice to get excited about something you're doing. It keeps you 
it's a kind of like a mirror of yourself looking back at you if you're making music for yourself yes that's a nice thing and it kind of it's kind of allows you to kind of analyze what you like and, and what because i mean if you're not feeling it why is anyone else going to feel it you know so i mean you have to put some emotion into what you do and it has to be real and true and then and then it will naturally resonate with other human beings and people will feel it but you know if you're putting something together that's contrived people will see through that you know yes and also and as you know most artists have said you know the the work that they prefer is the one that they did it for themselves and really believed in it and the work that they did where they were just thinking pressured into sort of making something and thinking oh this could be a commercial success we'll get this yeah, yeah. you know that's the work that they often look back and really feel like I wish I hadn't done that but then you know they were younger and and obviously you know they did what they thought at the time was the right thing but you know regret it so obviously yeah you're right you know it is it, it's got to come from the it's heart it's kind of similar to um similar to the like a magical process where you do things without lust of result you do things and you forget about them and then you come back and listen to it later on and think wow that was fucking good that was actually good you know you put it down and then it's like you record something and just leave it alone for a few weeks so you don't get too uh, start over critiquing it and thinking about it too much and, and end up fucking up by trying to do too many things to it. Do you work better when you've got a deadline when you think I've really got to make myself? No, 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 I don't. I don't, I don't really do deadlines in that kind of way. It's good to have some kind of plan about what you're going to do. Like the, the thing I've been doing with, with JJ and that at the moment, which has been our lockdown project, which has been the false fed thing. We've got a few social media pages up and running when that's, that's that's been put together by via file sharing but it does sound like a band right once everyone's been you know i've had to do it all to to click and bpm and all that stuff that is a kind of a, a, a new thing but you still got to make it sound like it's organic and not you know in a machine which is basically what we tried to do so it is good that's good i've got you know jeff Jeff from Discharge, singer from Discharge, um, his friend JP, who's a bass player, and Roy Mayorga is playing drums on it, and he has all the files, so that will be mixed and finished soon, I hope. And uh, we're going to put that out on Europe Recordings, which is Neurosis's record label. So that's kept us going during the lockdown. Yes. How did you cope with lockdown as, as sort of... Um, I'm, I'm, I don't, I'm not usually sociable anyway, but they're... The lockdown is kind of, I, I don't really know. I, I, I think, yeah, it, it, it brings up certain things. It forces you to face certain things about yourself, like, like any period of um, being in your own company does, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so, so, I mean, and whether you can tolerate it or not is another thing, isn't it, really? Yeah, I know. It's, yeah, yeah. So, I mean... I've, I've, we've coped with it, we've coped with it, you know, but it's, um, there's a, you know, a lot of my friends have died during this lockdown, not from COVID, but from uh, the cure, etc. But yeah, but there we go, you know, I don't want to get into the politics of all that, but you know, as we're not allowed to talk about those things these days. But yeah, <laughs> the lockdown, the lockdown didn't do any good, did it really? No, it's Did it do any good? No. I mean, yeah. <laughs> If we're talking about the science, did it do any good? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm just hoping it doesn't all. But it certainly made people feel more isolated, alone, and <clears throat> even more in their own little bubble of fear than they do when they're up on Facebook or 
and the other little bubbles of fear and projection we have going on now in this world. Yes. You know, where people are just, you know, you've got all this social media saying it's connecting you. It's not connecting you at all. It's allowing you to project, project your inner fears and your inner monologue and blurb and, and, you know, upload your bile really yeah yeah no it's um it's a it's a very weird place i mean do I you really try not to do that on social media i try and keep it light even though i have some dark thoughts or feelings about things i try not to get to be telling anyone else or you know how they should be living or what they want to do what they should be doing you know yes it's never not my business really i know and um i found yeah especially in the 80s you know being politically an angsty sort of person realizing that actually People are going to make their own decisions. Whether I'm going to, see, what I say, never seemed to change anyone's opinion, which is annoying. But you know, you you know, you you know, in that time, you know, you'd say you should do this or you shouldn't do that, and then afterwards you think, I'm just going to do what I think is the best, and that's going to be that's going to be good enough, you know. And in, yeah, there's 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 there's, that, there's one thing I've realised that 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 the whole advent of the internet and social media has. has it's a thing that I've realized about humanity and people is that people want you to feel like them. They want you to feel like them. If they're angry, they want you to feel angry too. If they're depressed, they want you to feel depressed too. If they've done this, they want you to do it too. You know, if, if they worship this God, they want you to worship that God too. Yes, this is it, true. <laughs> it's, it's very strange. It's a real simple kind of observation, but something I know it's more and more, ah, people want you to feel like them. And if you don't, they don't want to be your friend. Yeah, I know. Well, it is strange. It is strange because actually, a bit like going back to that other conversation when you, one one was young, getting into an alternative scene, which seemed very good, and then sort of realised actually, I'm not, I'm not really keen on the people that I think I should be. You know, we're wearing vaguely the same clothes. We've sort of like the yeah, same bands. Yeah, we're yeah. We're, in, we're in the same venue. We should be getting on. But actually, I'm finding myself quite both threatened and actually this guy's an asshole, you know. <laughs> so this is... that, 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 there was plenty of that. Plenty uh, of that. But, but I mean, you know, you know, I'm kind of, I, was, I, I still like that now. I don't, I don't really feel uh, at home going to a metal gig and then I don't really feel at home going to a punk gig. But I know I'm part of all these things, but I don't feel like I belong to either thing, you know. I, I can't really find my tribe anymore. Yes. You know? I, I, I don't know if it actually exists, but that's okay. You know, I think the only way you can communicate with your tribe is through the music and they'll feel it and they'll know that they're part of you and you're part of them because they'll, it'll resonate with them. That's your tribe, the people it resonates with. And also I think when you've been an artist for such a long time, a bit like, you know, going back to David Bowie, I mean, eventually you just become David Bowie and you think, well, do you, this is one album you might like, it, you might not, who knows? And there's sure. another album coming along, you might like it, you might not. You know, I suppose you just, you ele get elevated out of being in a scene and in a tribe and you just become, you know, you just... Be, you, become, you become the the thing that's identifiable as being that thing rather than being... You, being someone that come from this thing or became from that thing, yeah, yeah it, it, you you are uh, a brand in yourself. Yes, this, this is yeah. And some some of your product might be shit, and some of it might be good. You know, yeah. You must be really pleased. I mean, though this is probably a double edged sword, isn't it? But seeing on Spotify, you know, the amount of plays that the the band still gets each month is like blimey. That's you know, there's still a lot of passion and love for the band. They're, they're strangely, I don't have Spotify. So maybe I should get Spotify. I, I mean, yeah, there's, there, there is, there is, there was passion and love for the band. I, I mean, the internet really brought us back in that kind of way because I, I was like, you've been 
banging your head against a brick fucking wall all these years to try and put this thing out there. And no one really understands it. Like people go, oh yeah, Amoebic's fucking great, you know. But at the time it wasn't like that. It wasn't anything like that. There's people people going, oh, it's 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 there's no lead breaks, it's not metal enough, and or it's too metal, it's not punk enough, you know. It's like all these little things you have to fit into, and we didn't fit into any of these things. Yes. And people under people that understood it understood it. That's what I find with music. You can usually find some common ground with someone that likes the same track as you or the same piece of music or feels the same way about something. There's usually, even if you're politically diverse from each other, <clears throat> there's some point of human connection where you make that connection with that piece of music and it re- resonates with both of you, you know? Yes. But, um, yeah, no, <clears throat> I, I was just like, you know, sort of listening to the band and thinking, blimey, it's, it's, yes, a huge, <laughs> a huge monthly listen each, you know. I, um, I, I haven't seen, so I don't know. But I, I, there are, people do love amoebics for there's a certain time in their life that they love it from as well when they were like self growing up in the 80s or 70s you know there's there's that time and it takes them back to how they felt back then yeah rem- maybe reminds them of who they are or who they were i get i would imagine a lot of young people who weren't even born have have kind of gotten on because twenty thousand monthly listens is really twenty thousand. so that's you know that's very <laughs> new <laughs> and sunshine <laughs> and sun only with some fucking revenue from it, it would be great. I know. And Sunshine Ward has been played nearly thirty three hundred thousand times. So, you know, so it's wow. you've definitely got fans out there who are you've still done your research there, man. I know, that is that I know, intense research there. Sorry about that. That was that was a bit sloppy, wasn't it really? No, but... that was good. Spotify plays. Wow, great. I didn't even know I don't have Spotify. <laughs> so is it the case then with you don't have ownership of the music anymore, you you know the publisher does? Um, I, I have a PRS account, which kind of which scrapes a little bit from uh, from these. But really, myself, no, I don't really uh, own own the music in that kind of way. No, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure what happened with that. So that's one of the many things that you know that all got the, the Sonic Mass thing. We did that. That all got really out of hand, and it just kind of made me feel that this isn't really my tribe anymore either. You know, and this is kind of like it just got out of hand. I mean, to the, you know, when you when you've been used to doing things together all the time, and you suddenly you've got all these fucking music business wankers and record people trying to tell you what to do and trying to tell you what's what. That really just that was it for me. Yes. So when an album came out this year, the power remains the same. These the live recordings of the band. Is that something that the record label just put that together? Yeah, but that is that is that is um stuff that I. That Roy Roy produced. It's it's live off the desk, right? So it's live off the desk, and I think there's a DVD with it, which is us playing in Minneapolis, and the sound quality is really good on the DVD, from what I can tell. <clears throat> but really, I'm not anything to do with any of that anymore. I don't, you know, I've just, I've, I've, I can't really be. Um, I don't know. People people can say, oh, oh, this is a great record, or whatever, and I go, oh, okay, yeah, I haven't heard it, so. I know what the sound quality was like when we recorded it, and we uh, we made sure it was as good as we could do it. Did, so, did you yeah. enjoy playing live, by the way? I enjoyed playing live with Roy. I mean, I mean, some of those ones in America were, were kind of like a dream come true, where you got really an appreciative audience rather than a hostile audience, or you got an audience that have, you know, it was it's a different it's a different thing. I mean. It's kind of odd playing in America because people look like they did 30 years ago in this country, which is kind of odd. <laughs> and so you kind of feel like you've kind of gone back in time. You know, this old guy playing to people that look 
kind of a bit like you did 30 years ago, you know, it's <laughs> just kind of weird. But yeah, that was some of those gigs we were, we were treated right. And we actually came home with a couple of quid in our pocket. We ate right, you know, and we were looked after well by the Americans and they were very good to us. Yeah. So we, we, we had a good time. And you can see why that was the first time I've been to America. So like, you can see why bands go over there and get treated properly when you're used to being treated like, you know, <laughs> a bit different over here. But I haven't played in this country for a long time then. Yeah. That was 2009. So, so yeah. for, ne for next year, 2022, you've got a new album coming out. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, there's, you know, there's all this Brexit shit and all this um, COVID thing is, is delaying. Uh, apparently, there's a, there's a wait on vinyl in this country for going something like 13 weeks just to get vinyl. You know, yes. the, actual, the actual vinyl material is running out or something. So, I mean, hopefully, uh, I mean, even with the Neurop thing, that's going to be at least a six-month wait when we finish the actual recording and the production side. We've finished the recording. It's just the production side now, you know, just uh, mixing and mastering. So that's going to take, even when we finish it, it's going to take another six months for that to actually come out, I would have thought. Jesus Be Christ. Because of, because of the holdup, even in America, in the pressing plants. So it's not going to be like a bish-bash immediate thing, but it should it should be, a. I think it's a pretty exciting record. It's something that's kind of kept us going during lockdown, giving me something to do other than my solo things. It's nice to work with other people again and, and to work with nice people that want to, put the effort in to do it so i mean that's going to be a good record i think yes yeah. well no we're looking looking forward to it but you're yeah. right because because every every small little independent label who was relying on sort of you know vinyl you know releases of sort of either a seven inch single or an album who were just like oh no that's going to be delayed until the spring that's people, no. people don't even do singles anymore you know really you know it's more like a novelty thing you know i mean record companies don't want to put a single out they want to put an ep out even they just want to put albums out or digital right so which is it's quite difficult to see how music can survive this i mean and people could actually you know actually make a living out of it and survive doing it i you got to play live all the time, really, and have a lot of merch. Yes, merch, merch, is, merch is the only way to do it, really. So were you, yeah. I mean, when you were doing your solo stuff, were you playing live at all for that, or were you? Can you oh, hear me? Right? Yes, we froze there, didn't yeah. we? Yes, I was just uh, saying. I was, um, I was um, in treatment when I was doing that. I was in out of hospital for eight years. So like in and out going for different treatments. And so I, I wasn't going to be playing live doing it as well as that, the, the solo stuff I was doing would really need a band. And I didn't really feel like putting another band together to do it, you know? So I, I just sat so in recording things myself and uh, teaching myself how to, to use the technology really. I've got a lot better at it since, since when I first started doing them. And have you got so, that, I mean, is that material kind of available still? Yeah, the, I have. There's a little Bandcamp page, but I mean, it's it's early early stuff I did in about 2014. Right. So I mean, there's there's songs up on Bandcamp. There's a, there's a Stig C. Miller Bandcamp, which quite a few people follow. But I haven't done anything uh, solo for a while because I've been involved in other projects and collaborations with people. Yes. Which is kind of some that some of them uh, I took years of my time and haven't come to anything. And uh, the last one I've done this false fed one, that's going to be something quite exciting i know everyone says that about their records oh it's going to be awesome and i'm really proud of this and all that shit but i i am quite proud of the way that we managed to put those files together and all record and not actually be in the same room together but make it sound like we are in the same room together yes which is 
just really learning how to use this stuff, sending someone a riff. It's like this this BPM, put it in their, their DAW there and record their bit, send it back, mix it in with the track, you know, and then send the, uh, the whole the whole uh, thing off to Roy to play drums to. And he'd play drums to it, and then, then he'd send the drums back and we'd play the track again to his drums that made it more natural sounding, you know? This is so fantastic. That, um, and, um, and is Roy in L.A.? Yeah, yeah. So, so it's kind of interesting kind of like... <laughs> and the, the, other, the other guys are up in, up in, in Leek near Stoke-on-Trent, and I'm down here in Bristol, so it's, uh, it's, it's going to be interesting. It's, it's, it, it does sound like a, a band in a room because we've actually kind of made it sound like that, which is kind of good, rather than sound like some you know, click track heavy, you know, over-processed piece of computer music. I tried to make it sound analogue, you know. Yes. So mm. you got Roy and drums, but who, who did you say is producing it again? Roy's producing it. Blimey. Yeah, Roy's going to... Roy has all the files, and I'm just waiting on him to get time to... Because um, he's just been doing the music for uh, the Foo Fighters movie. Right. What's it called? Uh, Studio 666 or something. So he just did the... Um, he did all the score and the music, the the horror, scary music to the actual movie. Yes. And he's been busy doing that. So I was just waiting for him to get finished with all the stuff he has to do for that. You know, with Hollywood, you've got to do all the promotion and blah, blah, blah. So <clears throat> hopefully he'll be uh, he'll be ready to get that. God, that would be fantastic. Christmas. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's got he's, some amazing drumming on it. And Roy's always, Roy's not just a drummer, he's also a great... Um, imaginative person he's always really good with synth as well and he has all these beautiful old analog moves and everything so that should be fun i want to hear what he does with that because he had a stroke didn't he quite a few, mm-hmm. like 10 years ago so has he yeah. has he recovered from that yeah he, he makes him play a little bit differently i think the re- one of the reasons he had a stroke was because he used to bang his head when he was playing drums right i think he he severed some something in his neck which made it i'm not sure exactly what the technical thing is but something happened with his neck and the uh, arteries or something leading to blood in the neck. Cause he used to, but you watch him play now; he doesn't bang his head like he used to. He used to really bash his head around. Oh. He's taught himself to play without banging his head. So he, he seemed fine now. He seems a lot better. He's, he's okay. Yeah, he had quite an unpleasant time. Bloody hell! I know we we all we all go through it at a certain age, don't we? Right, like... right when he was in that in the middle of doing, um, I think it was Stone Sour, and he had to kind of drop out of that for a bit. Yeah. Yeah, so that was that was um, distressing for him, and I'm glad that he's better. The last time I saw him, he was great. Still yes. chatting once every so often, so he's he's doing a lot better now, and he's doing well. Brilliant, God, I know. I yeah, know. he lives in LA, where you can actually make a living out of music, which is <laughs> another <laughs> thing altogether. <laughs> yes, this is true. And so, I mean, if you could have said something like to your 16 or 18 year old self starting out, is there any kind of Words of wisdom you would have just said, you know, look at uh, this or keep focused on that, or is there any kind of thing that you would have just told them, even if they ignored you anyway? Specialise in being yourself. Specialise in being yourself. Yes. So people are either going to like it or they're not going to like it, but don't do it because people will like it. Do it because it's what you feel. Yeah, that, that's, that's the way with all art, isn't it? Otherwise, you're just going to have this homogenous non-expression where people are just copying each other. You have to kind of dig deep and find something in yourself that resonates with you and you feel in your heart and, and other people will feel it too then, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think that's probably what I'd say to you. Don't worry about not fitting in. Don't worry about it. You're never going to fit in. Yes. Well, that's... You're never going to 
Don't try. Don't try to fit in. Did you have a just moment where, where, where you just thought, actually, I'm just going to be myself from now on? Yeah, 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 yeah. However, however that may turn out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What they say, I guess that's the same. It's another way of saying follow your heart, I guess. Yes. Yeah. I think was it Oscar Wilde? Be yourself, because everyone else is taking or something. So that's, uh, that's about that's about right. Be yeah. yourself. Everyone else is a fake ass motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, this has been fantastic, and I do recommend. You know, I know I went on about it quite a bit, but the Beatles film is quite gripping, even if you think. I'm not that bothered about the Beatles or it's eight hours. It's just as that band dynamic, it's quite fascinating, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I might check this eight hours of movie. Wow. Eight hours. I'm not a huge Beatles fan, but I like watching movies about band dynamics. Do you ever see the Slade film, Flame? Do you know, I've never seen that. I've, I've seen... What, a real crap quality version of it the other day and I watched it. And they were kind of like... Yeah, a lot of the what makes them break up and they get ripped off and all this stuff in the movie. And it was like, they were talking about things that people didn't really talk about back then. So it was a pretty cool film. Yeah, no, I've, I've, you know, I used to love, I'd love watching those ones. They used to be on BBC Four on a Friday night about a story of a band. And it's just, you know, all the classic kind of stuff that happens. Yeah. But um, there's actually, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I saw one on Twisted Sister again, you know. And I'm not, I can't stand the band really, but the story was just amazing, you know. Yeah. And, and it kind of just goes up to when they get their record deal and then it finishes and you think, wow. You, oh, oh, what was the one? Oh, I watched one that was Anvil. Did you watch the Anvil story? I thought that was quite good. <laughs> story of Anvil. No, was, I haven't seen this, that. This heavy metal band Anvil and they were like, they were one of the, like the, they were, they were set up to be like, you know, the next Metallica when Metallica were getting big and Anvil, but they were kind of playing these kind of, you know, it's kind of plodding metal, like, you know, it's, but like, the story is quite touching. If you watch the Anvil movie, it's quite, it's quite touching. And it, especially if you've been in a band and that, you can relate to a lot of what happens in it, you know. It's well, on Metallica, I remember there was one documentary film I watched and um, this is when they were recording an album. And the, there was a therapist who was... Oh, uh, God, some kind of monster. Oh, that's a cringe fest, isn't and, it? And it was a bit like oh. the, the, the therapist started having opinions about how the music was going. And it I was, could... It was, it was cringeworthy, wasn't it? It was I mean, like... fair play to them for actually letting that get out there, man. God, that's a warts and all documentary, man, really. But, but you know, it was amazing. Then I, I guess the other members of the band said, look, we... I can't have the therapist, you know, it's, it, it's like, I can't have your therapist telling me. <laughs> He's going to move so they could be right next door to them or something. I know, it was a bit like, you know, that was, that, that, yeah, it's, it's that amazing, was, you know. That but was it, some creepy shit, man. <laughs> I know. I mean, and, but the thing is, being a therapist, you'd think he would have had an idea that, actually, I'm not here to start being part of the band. I'm here to support this person. I need to keep my mouth shut and just disappear occasionally not you know start having suggestions of what i'm what... a therapist with aspirations of being a rock star. yes i mean it was like i know but then you know it's in america and it's obviously a bit yeah a different... yeah things are a bit confused there man. they did anyway look thank you ever so much for this this has been amazing if you want i can always send you the link and then you could use it elsewhere yeah yeah brilliant lovely talking to you richard david sorry <laughs> uh, um yeah yeah, yes, it's been, been fun. A little bit of trip down memory lane and all that. Yes, it's been yeah. good. It's been all good. Right. Look, good. And... Yes, yeah, send me. A, you've got me thing. You can send me a link. All good. I, I can. Right. Okay, take care. Thanks a lot. All the best. Cheers. Bye bye. Thank bye -bye. you. And that's the and that's me. That's the end of the interview. Anyway, that's what I'm trying to say. I like to leave those last bits in because 
It always sounds slightly sort of apologetic. And that, frankly, Mr. Shangley, is what I'm all about, being apologetic and starting sentences with the word sorry, just for everything. Anyway, look, a massive thank you to Stig for giving me the time for that interview. Um, this has been The C86 Show. I'm David Easter. If you want to contact me for some random reason, no one ever does, but I always say this in a hopeful way, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Also, these have all been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Keep it positive, keep it groovy, because life is too short and then you die. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.